Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On January 30th, guards attacked Robert Earl Council and beat him until he was unconscious. Council, also known as Kinetic Justice, is a longtime imprisoned organizer and co-founder of the Free Alabama Movement. Council has been subject to years of violence, harassment, and isolation in retaliation for his protests against appalling conditions inside Alabama's prisons. Following this week's attack, he was taken to a Birmingham hospital. Outside supporters have urged as many people as possible to call the Donaldson Correctional Facility and express concern for Council's welfare. The prison's phone number is 205-436-3681. We'll also have this information on our website. The $1.4 trillion government spending bill that Congress passed on December 20th stipulates that a 26-year-old ban on granting prisoners federal financial aid for college will be lifted. The ban had been enacted as part of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which then-President Clinton signed into law. One senator who promoted the ban enthusiastically was current President Biden, but during the 2020 presidential campaign said his push to end Pell Grants for prisoners was a, quote, big mistake. End quote. Support for Pell Grants is high, even among prison administrations. According to Prison Legal News, prison officials think, quote, a prisoner who has something meaningful to work toward is less likely to get into trouble, end quote. People incarcerated for drug crimes had not been eligible for many types of government benefits, including Pell Grants, which they had been banned from receiving since 1998. Now that ban has been lifted, Lifting the ban extends a pilot program that began in 2015, when then-President Obama began to permit a small number of prisoners to obtain Pell Grants through a limited number of colleges. The program was so successful that advocates argue it should be expanded and made permanent. Last Tuesday, January 26th, President Joe Biden ordered the Department of Justice to end its reliance on private prisons, acknowledging the government needs to change its whole approach to racial equity. Biden said, quote, We must change now. I know it's going to take time, but I know that we can do it, and I firmly believe the nation is ready to change, but government has to change as well, unquote. The order will effectively revert the Justice Department to its posture at the end of the Obama administration, directing the Attorney General not to renew contracts with privately operated prisons. The Federal Bureau of Prisons has already opted not to renew some private prison contracts, as thousands of inmates are being released to home confinement during the pandemic. Geo Group, a private company that operates federal prisons, called the Biden order, quote, a solution in search of a problem a political statement which could carry serious negative unintended consequences, including the loss of hundreds of jobs and negative economic impact, unquote. David Fothy, director of the ACLU's National Prison Project, noted that the order does not end the federal government's reliance on privately run immigration detention centers. He explained that, quote, the order is an important first step 
toward acknowledging the harm that has been caused by taking actions to repair it. But President Biden has an obligation to do more, especially given his history and promises." Unquote. Rashad Robinson, president of the National Racial Justice Organization Color of Change, expressed disappointment that policing was not addressed in the executive action. Quote, President Biden's executive orders provide important steps forward but do not go far enough. Unquote. For our show this week, we sit in on a conversation between Dr. Jeffrey Ian Ross and Dr. Mikul Siegel. Ross is a professor in the School of Criminal Justice, College of Public Affairs, and a research fellow in the Center for International and Comparative Law and the Schaefer Center for Public Policy at the University of Baltimore. In their conversation, they talk about the concept of convict criminology. Convict criminology is a study of crime and prisons by ex-convict academics and associated critical and radical scholars. In addition to outlining the roots and applications of this concept, they discuss other topics, such as police reform and the issues faced both by formerly incarcerated people and those who study incarceration and policing. Here they are. Convict criminology has been called a group, it's been called a movement, it's been called an organization, it's been called a school, it's been called a theory, but I believe it's primarily a network or a platform. And it's united in the perception that the convict voice has either been neglected or it's been minimized in scholarship or in uh, public policy debates as it concerns criminal justice in general and corrections in particular. So, you know, who's it for? It's mainly for individuals who are either incarcerated or formerly incarcerated who have earned a PhD in the field of criminology or criminal justice or an allied field, you know, political science, sociology, so on, or on the, they're in the process of working on a doctorate. Okay, so it also includes people who are justice impacted and prison activists who share the mission are also in possession of a PhD or in the process of earning one. So uh, that's the basic sort of cornerstone there. You know, ever since uh, we started back in the 1990s, we've found a very comfortable home in the division uh, of uh, critical criminology. It was this spring that we officially became our own standalone division of the American Society of Criminology. And so that's an important milestone in, in, in its development. So during the 1990s, uh, a couple things coalesced. Uh, number one was uh, this, uh, we have a, a strong re- prisoner reentry movement going on in the United States. Uh, realization that many of the people who are locked up for uh, drug-related kinds of uh, offenses were being released from prison, and we did not have suitable uh, programs that uh, would help these people reintegrate into, uh, you know, our our, our our communities. Also, too, a very strong prison abolition movement that was happening uh, during this time. Um, what else was happening? I think uh, we also had a lot more people who were graduating with uh, for, uh, with bachelors, masters, and PhDs who had some sort of criminal past. Uh, they may or may not have been incarcerated. So that was also part of the uh, undercurrent of, of what was going on during that, that time. Uh, Convict Criminology 1.0 consisted of primarily a lot of uh, men who had been behind bars and had been privy to Pell Grants either while they were behind bars or uh, upon release, they were able to benefit from from Pell Grants. Convict Criminology 2.0, which uh, consists of younger people, more were more diverse. Uh, many of these people had to self-fund their own education or their families stepped up to the plate and uh, 
uh, help them uh, get through, um, you know, paying for their bachelor's, master's, and PhD, that sort of thing. So, so those sort of uh, elements coalesce together. There were also, uh, I think, there was a movement in the starting, in, you know, in the early part of the century for universities to teach in prisons in a hybrid or a atypical fashion. So we saw the inside out program that started uh, originally at a temple university and it's expanded throughout the United States and into other countries. There's a, a niche that many people don't quite understand. And that is we are really oriented to people who are either they have a PhD or they're in the pursuit of earning a PhD. And it's not only people who are incarcerated uh, or formerly incarcerated, but it's also people who are, as I mentioned before, justice impacted and also prison activists. And, and But they also must share the, share the vision too that we have. Those are key elements of, of what conduct criminology is all about. Why did criminology as a field of study need convict criminology? What does criminology do in the world without convict criminology? And what does convict criminology add to the study of crime and justice? So what can incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people bring to the field of criminology and criminal justice? How can people who have been incarcerated challenge past research findings? What kind of insights do people who have been in prison have? Incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people can bring a lot, a much needed alternative perspective to the scholarly study and teaching in the fields of criminology and criminal justice. And I say this for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, criminology and criminal justice, they are interdisciplinary at the core, and thus they've uh, traditionally picked and chosen ideas that have merit from other fields. And up until relatively recently, there were a few uh, programs in criminology, uh, PhD programs in criminology and criminal justice. So I, I myself, I'm a political scientist by training. And so I came into criminology uh, with that uh, background. Uh, criminology, criminal justice uh, traditionally drew from the fields of anthropology, history, law, political science, and sociology. And, and people who taught criminology and criminal justice uh, were drawn from those disciplines. So here's another thing too, is that criminologists, many criminologists have or have had uh, criminal justice practitioner experience. So they were former um, you know, police officers or administrators. They may have been or currently are lawyers, judges, public defenders or prosecutors. And then amongst uh, criminologists, we have our share of former correctional officers, uh, administrators uh, or parole and probation officers. Uh, rarely uh, have we seen firsthand experience. They were a perpetrator of crime or they had been locked up for some period of time. Uh, and rarely are they in the position of working as criminologists in a educational uh, institution like a community college or a university. So that piece has been lacking. And so what we believe and what we know is that those kinds of individuals can contribute to the mission of criminology, criminal justice, and, and critical criminology. So what can they do? They can infuse a dose of realism and reality into the subject. So how does that happen? Well, that happens uh, in the classroom where uh, sometimes there's a tendency towards war stories, and these war stories are taught by, you know, criminal justice practitioners. They can add, that is, formerly incarcerated people, can add a dose of realism as to what actually took place during their incarceration. But they can also challenge research findings that may have been done in a, uh, not necessarily an antiquated, but in a very artificial manner, in particular, a lot of the quantitative research. 
they can question that sort of uh, research that's been done. They can also break down a lot of the myths of corrections. There's numerous myths of corrections, including you know the cleanliness uh, of a facility, the myth of prisoner rape, the myth of the smug hack, uh, the uncaring correctional staff, that sort of thing, the myth of the you know country club prison, that sort of thing. They can they can break those myths down for their students, and also this can be translated into the kinds of research that they do. The mass media, news media, has a lot of tropes about what crime is, who are the typical criminals, what happens in a correctional facility, and and, and I find that unsettling, as do a lot of people I uh, I work with. Uh, also, too, if you are formerly incarcerated, a, a lot of your students have family who are incarcerated, or some of them may have been formerly incarcerated, and it allows you to have a, uh, a bond with them. That's a lot of the convict criminology uh, contribution to the field of criminology and criminal justice. Um, let me just ask, since you're shifting in your vocabulary as we talk, um, mm -hmm. why do you use the term convict to describe the field of convict criminology, given the, how much stigma is attached to the idea of the con? And you, you also use words like ex-con and felon, and you used the word perpetrator a couple minutes ago. I mean, those mm -hmm. are, um, that's not the people first language that um, the formerly incarcerated scholars and activists I work with use, right? And they make these vehement and very convincing arguments for people first language. So why are you sticking with the words of, um, of a previous generation of activists? Your point is very well taken as are the um, comments of uh, many of your uh, peers and colleagues. And uh, the reason why some of those terms are still in use are the following. So when we started out, the notion of convict, using convict, uh, had a somewhat honest, if not shocking, kind of impression. And we also, when we spoke to many of the founders of the group, uh, when we spoke amongst us, they preferred being called a convict or an ex-convict. It was only later that terms like formerly incarcerated uh, or returning citizen was being used. And we found that those terms were unpalatable. They were very liberal. Uh, they were invented not by people who were incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. They're invented by people who were prison activists. And should I go so far as to say people who were do-gooders? And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So that's uh, the, the main reasons. We still have this debate. Some of these debates can be quite interesting about renaming ourselves. So there is a, there's a lot of tension between should we stay with convict? Or should we move on to something like formerly incarcerated? There's also this notion of brand. Well, we've always been known as, you know, convict criminology. Do we change our, our name to incarcerated, formerly incarcerated? And then amongst even people who are behind bars, there's subtleties between who is a prisoner, who is an inmate, who is a convict. That's lost on a lot of people uh, who are outside of prisons. And so We've decided that we're going to stay with convict criminology until we can come up with a better name. And we're not conservative in the sense that we don't ignore the possibility that we could call ourselves something different. Even when I was chairing the Division of Critical Criminology, uh, we added the additional terms social justice. So it's now the Division of Critical Criminology and Social Justice. 
But we all knew that uh, just by changing the name doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to change how we go about doing things, which is a deeper sort of kind of structural change. Now, we do have difficulty with using the word offender. We do have difficulty using the term guard when uh, correctional officer would be better. Uh, there's a lot of demeaning terms that we could call people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, but we don't think that calling them a convict uh, is a demeaning term. Will you tell us a little bit more about your most recent book? So back in the spring of last year, Francesca Vianello and I, we decided that uh, we would hold a conference on convict criminology. So it was a little bit more com uh, complex than that. So uh, Steve Richards and I, we edited the book Convict Criminology, and it had a res respectable impact, but a lot of uh, things have changed since the original publication. The book was published, I think, in 2003, and there has been a new generation of people who have come to convict criminology. Uh, we have people who are in other countries who have clearly benefited from the writing on convict criminology. And so Francesca, who's at University of Padua, and I believe that it was time for a new book on convict criminology. So we uh, teamed up and we invited scholars in the field to present papers at the conference. So we had a couple dozen papers that were given at the conference over two days, and many of those papers became chapters in the book. And, and so the, the book uh, recognizes the changes that have gone on in the field of convict criminology, also in academia and criminal justice practices and public policy debates. The chapters fall into different categories. A uh, few of them look at the historical underpinnings of convict criminology. Some of them look at, you know, the classic adaptations to prison life, you know, prisonization, that sort of thing. Then the, you know, the longstanding challenges that people have who are being released from prison and readapting to life outside. Because one of our main pillars is mentoring and teaching. Some of the chapters look at teaching prisoners behind bars and the challenges there conducting scholarly research behind bars and those challenges, and then looking at future directions, areas that we need to improve on, do better at, that is all part of it. And so that's what the chapters do. And there's a large number of people from Italy who contributed chapters to the book. Uh, we have uh, colleagues in uh, the UK who contributed from mm -hmm. Canada and from the United States. It's interesting to have such a strong presence of Italians, given the kind of original sin of um, Italians in inventing the worst kind of criminology with Cesare Lombroso and studies of craniology and so on, right? It's funny that they're also involved in the radical turn. We found that quite ironic, but here's what happened in Italy, if I understand what was going on well, is the 1960s and the 1970s saw a phenomenal radicalization of young men and women, particularly on the left in Italy. And some of them were uh, arrested, some of them were incarcerated, some of them were caught up in the uh, activism around Brigate Rose the left-wing terrorist organization. And so some of them were released from prison and that experience led them to do more work on behalf of people who are incarcerated, including education. So that's how that sort of whole field really took off in Italy. So the introduction of convict criminology into Italy was at the right time.
wanted to ask about an article that you wrote in 1998 for an anthology of essays on radical and criminal criminology, in which you divided the literature on policing into three groups, conservative slash traditional, liberal slash reformist, and radical slash critical. And obviously radical critical is the category in which you place yourself and your work. But you know that because of its challenges to some of the basic assumptions about policing, radical or critical work is often marginalized and has less effect on police practice and policy. Yet at the end, you say that the place of this scholarship is central in understanding police and therefore that it, quote, may actually help municipal policing reach the next paradigm. So could you tease out this contradiction for us and your resolution of it if you have one? This is one of the key uh, contradictions that I face as a radical scholar of police in relation to practical reform of policing. You know, how can our radical work actually have a practical application? If radical or critical work on policing wants to challenge the most fundamental assumptions about policing, how could it be a part of the patently reformist project of helping municipal police evolve? Well, you know, you're forcing me to reach back into the cobwebs of my memory 22 okay. years. You know, it, it's it's slowly coming back to me. And I, I think this is what I was trying to argue. In order for policing to be effective, they have to form strong bonds with the community. And people who advocated, people who, you know, who wrote about policing, you know, two decades ago, not all of them, some of them, we're talking about community policing and they're talking about community policing being, I would say, almost a panacea for policing. And uh, I was fortunate back in the 90s to be working for the United States Department of Justice during the Clinton administration at the National Institute of Justice, where we had a portfolio that dealt with community policing. So we were reviewing, monitoring projects, primarily research projects in the field of community policing. And the Clinton administration through the Crime Act, despite what lots of activists say about the Crime Act, and I think the majority of them are misinformed about the Crime Act, they wanted to put 100,000 police officers on the streets to engage in community policing. Now, that was a bold move, bold statement, but it was up to individual jurisdictions to implement their own versions of community policing. And some very progressive chiefs of police, commissioners of police, and senior management did these really great projects. Uh, they looked promising. Others saw it as not necessarily a cash cow, but it was a way to supplement the budget temporarily so that they could keep their agencies going, hire a few extra uh, police officers, get some more technology uh, until the next fad came along. And, and what happened was uh, after the Clinton administration, community policing started decreasing in the United States. And what came in its place was disproportionately Comstat. Uh, now, Comstat was operating at the same time that community policing was uh, achieving what was during its renaissance in, in the United States. So Comstat is the practice whereby once a week, the chief of police or commissioner of police or a senior uh, police uh, manager drills down into the crime statistics that have occurred over the past week. And he or she asks the commander 
of a district or a senior manager of a borough or whatever and says, hey, why do we see a spike in, say, you know, strong arm robberies? Why do we see an increase in, you know, snatch and grabs? Why do we see an increase in complaints because of graffiti? Okay, well, uh, the captain, the, you know, lieutenant uh, has to explain why and has to more importantly, say what they've done. So what it is, it's a way to hold middle management accountable. In a perfect world, that makes sense. But what happened was many large cities in the United States that adopted the ComStat model then became, I wouldn't necessarily say manipulating their numbers, but their priorities changed. They shifted away from these, those sort of touchy-feely things of community policing and more to let's collect stats, let's increase street stops, Let's increase arrests. So that's why, you know, stop and frisk was uh, so prominent during Giuliani's term as a a mayor. And it led to people in the neighborhoods from where these young men were stopped and frisked being very, I wouldn't say anti-police, but they're very distrustful of the police. They didn't want want to cooperate with the police. And the police were increasingly perceived as the occupying army. And so community policing didn't necessarily go out the window. And then what happened is that creative chiefs, and I use the word creative in a bad sense, started labeling all sorts of contact with the community as community policing. It really wasn't. Community policing and problem-oriented policing, which is its its cousin, which is a technique under, or, or a, a technique under community policing, is, is a way to build true, strong relationships with communities. And so, uh, so in many respects, uh, because of this abandonment or curtailing of community policing, we're in the situation where we are today, where we're seeing police reacting to street protests like they occurred in the spring of this year's in a very negative and often violent manner. And the police there are increasingly distant from a lot of the communities in which they police. And so we have almost gone back to uh, a situation that was kind of pre-community policing in, in, in many cities, uh, not to mention, you know, disproportionate, you know, stopping and questioning, uh, warning, arresting people of color, disproportionately African-Americans, and then uh, violence meted out. There's other factors involved there, there too. What is your vision of police reform? What do you think police reform should look like? And do you call yourself, do you think of yourself as a police abolitionist? That's a great question. And I wrote a blog post about the defund movement and recognizing that there's a subtlety between abolition versus defund. I'm not sure today whether I would, uh, I'm not in favor of abolition. And I think we don't really understand defund, but I think that there's a large number of tasks that we uh, give police officers and departments Uh, that they're not very good at doing. And in fact, they exacerbate situations. They make them worse. In terms of training for some of these situations, we give them minimal training and uh, they're not most suited to to deal particularly with homeless people. They're not most suited to deal with people who are chronic uh, drug or alcohol users. We don't have viable solutions right now. I think abolish the police is a very bold statement Uh, which has a shock value, which could motivate people to come up with solutions. I mean, that's that's the thing about having a very provocative term. Like convict criminology, it it will shock people maybe into experimenting in a manner that could be quite helpful. Now, we've, we've had, even since the 1960s, we've had experiments where police officers would go to domestic calls 
uh, with a person who's a social worker. Um, we've had minimal uh, replications of those experiments. Uh, let's face it, a lot of uh, men and women who go into policing, they like the law and order side uh, rather than the sort of the order maintenance or, or the social work side of it. Uh, we need to rethink the kinds of people who we, we hire. Many police departments, particularly big city police departments, are having a tough time you know, hiring the appropriate people. This has been KiteLine. Thanks to Dr. Siegel and Dr. Ross for their conversation. We'll have more from them next week. In the meantime, you can find out more information at our new website, kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.